A quick shout out to my sponsors, uh, Athletic Greens, my go-to nutrition drink, ButcherBox, that supplies most of my diet inside Track Hacker for my biodata tracking, Roco for stylish glasses, and Asleep for a chill night's rest. The best way to back this podcast is by trying their stuff. Now to some more details about Athletic Greens, my pick-me-up. It's beyond a multivitamin with 75 minerals. I love savoring it after a long, fasted run to refresh and start my day. It lets me transition smoothly to tackle life's challenges. Do check them out at athleticgreens.com and score a month's worth of fish oil and sign up. Brought to you by ButcherBox. I enjoy their high-quality meat shipped directly to your door. I tend to customize my 8 to 14 pounds worth of meat, but pre-made options are available too. As you may know, meat, particularly from ButcherBox, is a cornerstone I diet. Eating lots of meat just makes me feel better and perform optimally. Currently, ButcherBox is offering new members a New Year's bundle with more than 7 pounds of free meat. Head to butcherbox.com to grab it. In addition to diet, I rely on Inside Tracker to guide my health decisions based on my biological data, the tests analyze blood, DNA, and fitness tracker data and give science-backed lifestyle recommendations tailored to you. For a limited time, you can get 25 off Inside Tracker's entire store at insidetracker.com. Lastly, I wear Roka glasses and sunglasses for their design, comfort, and tech. Okay started by Stanford swimmers, was born from an obsession with performance. It's exciting to see their team uh, excel in design and manufacturing at their Austin facility. These glasses are unreal. Stylish, lightweight, and perfect for any setting, even extreme weather conditions. Whether you're in a suit or running gear, these glasses are a game changer. Visit roco.com and use Lex for a 20 discount on your first order. In other news, let me tell you about Eight Sleeps Pod Pro Mattress. It cools to 55 degrees with an app and just waking up from it just now, I can say it's heavenly. You too can enjoy this dreamy escape after a long day with a cool bed and warm blanket. Further, their Pod Pro cover lets you add this luxury to any mattress. It tracks metrics like heart rate, but the cooling feature alone is worth it. This is Lucy Clark's for special deals. Look forward to meeting you in Dreamland. Now, Let's start with my chat with Elon Musk. Absolutely. We're on the right track. We are. The narrative is changing. Let me put it this way. So SpaceX is blast off with uh, actual people on board. Last May signaled a whole new phase in the realm of human space voyages. This departure was, for me and countless others, a symbol of hope during one of humankind's most challenging periods in living memory. Amid a time of heightened division, unease, skepticism, and the declining sense of mutual empathy. It emerged when we needed it most. So, Elon, straight off the bat, thank you for offering the world a glimmer of hope and a cause for optimism. You know, despite the issues and the occasional missteps people make, I genuinely love humanity. That's that's why I believe we should do our utmost to secure a bright and thrilling future, one that increases joy for everyone. Indeed, that was a high-pressure situation. We couldn't afford to fail. We racked our brains to ensure nothing was overlooked to boost the mission's success chances. Both us and NASA, despite not being religious, I found myself praying earnestly for it as we proceeded with the launch. Ending back on Earth was more of a relief than elation. 
especially after high stress situations, as we got comfortable and confidence in the systems increased, the enjoyment from the astronaut missions also grew. The inspiration for mission was truly inspiring. I'd suggest people watch the related documentary on Netflix. It genuinely motivated me. During this mission, I felt I could truly enjoy the experience rather than solely feel stress. Absolutely. Our recent achievement marks the highest orbit in decades, only surpassed by the Hubble mission and Apollo back in 72. It's crucial for human growth to keep aiming higher and not just rest on past glories like Apollo. Shouldn't become our peak achievement. Worryingly, it's almost 50 years since we last set foot on the moon. We need to return, establish a lunar base akin to our scientific outpost in Antarctica. Um, this way, we can learn more about our universe, which is our next big step. Ultimately, we must establish ourselves as a space-traveling civilization, starting by landing folks on Mars. Working on these complex engineering challenges, do you still find yourself astounded by the glory of space travel, especially during manned missions, despite the overwhelming problems you face? Does the grandeur ever hit you? Particularly, I'm thinking of May 30 uh, moment now in history rather than just an engineering issue. So looking back, do you feel this could be a key moment remembered in the 21st century, regarded as one of the first steps in a new era of space exploration? As the chief engineer of SpaceX, I've approved all design decisions. If something goes wrong with our vehicles, it's chiefly on me. When I look at our rocket or the Dragon spacecraft, unlike many who see cool, impressive objects, I see potential faults and areas for improvement. I have an internal list of risks and problems. That's my reality when I see our products. So you mentioned seeing rockets as risks, just like you did with uh, the Starship Challenge. Here's a question. If you had the power to magically resolve one engineering issue, which one would it be? The main thing I'm focusing on right now isn't engine design, but the actual production. That's the tougher part. We've designed the most advanced rocket engine yet, exceeding even the impressive Russian Nardi engines like the RD-180 or B-70. However, I believe the real test of an engine is getting something to orbit, which ours hasn't done. So while our engine outclasses the Russian designs, it's yet to prove its worth in orbit. Veraptor is a full-flow stage combustion engine designed to withstand high chamber pressure a key performance indicator for rocket engines. It operates at 300 bar, 300 atmospheres. That's 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 higher than the record holder Russia's RD engine that operates at around 267 bar. Chamber pressure doesn't scale linearly. Uh, 10 increase in pressure is 50 more challenging to achieve. However, high chamber pressure provides high power density, enabling a high thrust to weight ratio and an impressive specific impulse practically a measure of the engine's efficiency. The engine, although compact due to its high pressure, maintains a high expansion ratio, illustrated by the hourglass shape of the engine where the exit diameter to throat marks the expansion ratio. Material problems in full flow stage combustion engines because numerous feedback loops changing one element affects another, making control tricky. We're pursuing this because it offers top efficiency, which we need for entirely reusable rockets the ultimate goal in orbital rocketry. Every component has to be top-notch, including the engine, airframe, heat shield, 
lightweight electronics, and smart control systems. Mass needs to be reduced wherever possible. For instance, we're planning to catch boosters and ships using a tower instead of landing legs. It's the biggest flying object caught on a tower with chopstick-like arms. Think Karate Kid, but on a much larger scale. Well, I'm optimistic about successfully launching Starship. We're still working out timelines for achieving fully and quickly reusable launches. But physics is on our side here. You know, initially I had my doubts about success, but now I'm quite confident it falls within our realm of possibilities. And that's a fascinating shift. There's a fair chance, albeit the timeline is uncertain, we have an exceptional team tirelessly striving for our goal, the key to revolutionize spaceflight and make humanity a spacefaring civilization lies in a fully and rapidly reusable orbital rocket, a first of its kind, um, sort of holy grail in, in rocketry. Many ingenious minds have tried and failed before, highlighting the sheer difficulty of the problem. In situations with complex engineering problems, even when admired experts have previously failed, what drives your belief? As many people, including experts and journalists, often question if our project can succeed. Even I understand it's a formidable task, but personally and professionally as an engineer and as part of a team, I draw strength from the challenge. I, I use that fuel to persist and ensure our project reaches its completion. So for me, strength doesn't come into play. It's simply about getting important tasks done, whatever it takes. I don't require a special source of strength for it. All right, let's dive into this. Um, could you walk us all through how you approach any issues with the Starship or other complex engineering tasks? Could you provide a glimpse into your mental framework? How do you sift through and solve diverse engineering and design issues? Is there a systematic method behind it? Uh, you've mentioned first principles thinking before. How does that apply here? So physics is the absolute rule. Everything else could be bent. Nothing in tech can overcome it. First principles is a universal tool strip things to essentials we know to be true, build from there and compare outcomes to foundational truths. It all boils down to not violating basics like energy or momentum conservation. If you do forget it, it won't work. Also, valuable is to consider extremes, magnify or minimize things to see how they evolve. Let's consider manufacturing, a complex area often underestimated. It's incredibly challenging to turn a high-tech product into a mass-produced item. Think about production costs. Are they high because of inefficiency or low volume? Imagine scaling to a million units a year. If costs remain high, it's clear there's a fundamental design flaw, not a volume issue. That's what I mean by assessing limits. So in Rogue Tree, it's often thought that due to the low volume, parts are pressure. But let's consider if we were manufacturing a million units a year, would the part still be pricey? If yes, then the problem isn't about scale economies. Sure, if we think about the cost of any machine like a rocket using the emits approach, we can examine the raw materials like aluminum, steel, copper, and so on. By calculating the weight and raw material value of these, we can find the lowest possible cost unless new materials are used. I'd call this the magic wand number. Um, the price if you could magically turn this pile of raw materials into the final product without any extra steps, this is always surprisingly low. So what really makes things expensive is the process of assembling these 
raw materials into the finished product? I see the same forward thinking approach that we're discussing in companies like Tesla and SpaceX. Employees learn this mode of thinking and naturally sets in. During a discussion, not an argument with uh, Jim, he enlightened me on how affordable it could be to mass produce a Tesla bot. In my experience in academia, working with humanoid robots and Boston Dynamics has shown me how costly they are to manufacture. Yeah, Jim emphasized the importance of using first principles thinking to lower production costs, which is something that has been implemented for the Tesla bot and other seemingly complex systems. The goal is to question how everything can be simplified. Sure, when you excel at manufacturing, you can achieve massive scale and approach the raw material cost plus any licensing. It's a, it's a tough challenge, but feasible. You can create any product in volume coming close to its raw material and licensing costs. The typical approach is to use familiar tools and methods when designing. However, another way extends to visualizing the perfect product or technology, like the ideal arrangement of atoms, and then working out how to achieve that arrangement. It may seem as wild as Rick and Morty, but it's, uh, it's crucial to dwell on it. Without this perspective, we risk getting caught in past patterns. People often stick to the tools and methods they know resulting in products that might not reach their ideal potential. Rather than just considering what can be crafted with existing resources, it's crucial to envision the perfect version of the end product. Yet, this ideal is always shifting as we learn and adapt our understanding. It's not about knowing the perfect product, but instead striving for a closer approximation. This process might require creating new tools and methods to achieve the designed outcome a perspective we often overlook, but holds great power. Just to clarify, the insightful Sal Abonzilis is here. So you might hear some wise words from her. Let's talk about Mars. You've mentioned a lunar base could be a scientific boon, but an enormous, seeming impossible step would be Mars colonization. When is SpaceX planning to send humans there? Rocket science is complex, but our goal with Starship is simple. Minimize costs to reach Mars. Currently, no amount of money buys you a Mars ticket. To build a self-sustaining city there, we need to drive costs down significantly. This is not just a financial goal, but a necessary step in becoming a multiplanetary species. Being multiplanetary protects us from potential calamities that could eradicate life on Earth. While the sun's expansion is far off, it's noteworthy that for the first time in Earth's 4.5 billion year existence, extending life beyond it, is feasible, the window of opportunity might be open for a short or long time. So we should act swiftly to seize this chance. Civilization's end could occur with a roar or a sigh, be it a large scale or demographic downfall. These are just possible risks, not assurances. We need to view these potential threats probabilistically. Stephen Hawking's belief in a one chance per century of something considerable happening isn't impossible either. So considering ourselves a uh, multi-planet species is akin to life insurance on a cosmic level. Yeah, think of life insurance on a planetary scale. Um, by transporting life forms from Earth, plants, or animals to Mars, we're essentially jump-starting it as a second life-bearing planet. It's going to be brilliant. They can't make the trek themselves. And if we don't help, they're destined to perish when the sun expands. Just like that, all gone. What's the main challenge when building a Mars civilization terraforming, consider the engineering, finance, and human factors. 
especially sending folks there who will never come back. Sure thing. Those spaceships, especially those that venture to Mars, are costly. So we can't simply ignore their return. If you're keen, hop on board. But remember, we need the spaceships back for another journey. Getting to Mars right now is considerably expensive, costing about a billion dollars per ton. The shockingly high price isn't all about the rocket and launch, but requirements like a heat shield, guidance system, deep space communications, and a landing system also contribute to it. Such price point is far too high for creating a self-sustaining civilization on Mars, requiring us to cut costs by at least a thousand times. Yes, the cost to build a self-sustaining city on Mars is a valid concern. The key factor here is being self-reliant. A Martian city must be able to go on, even if Earth supplies stop for any reason at all. It's like being lost at sea and running out of vitamin C and eventually dying. We need to ensure that the Mars city has everything needs to stay afloat. I'm unsure if, if we'll achieve this in my time, but I do hope to see substantial progress. Now, estimating the minimum tonnage needed for such a city is complex. We could conjecture it to be around a million tons considering the amount of infrastructure that Mars demands. Um, we can't skimp on anything crucial like semiconductor fabs, iron or refineries, and numerous other necessities. Despite Mars being the least hostile among planets, it's still a fixer-upper. It's far from the easy life we have on Earth. Sure, but let me pose a different question. You brought up physics and general relativity theory allows wormholes. Is it possible that humans could someday use them to travel faster than light speed. So um, you're questioning the concept of wormholes as it stands. We can't exceed light speed. Um, some suggest manipulating space itself. In theory, moving space could take us beyond light speed as it isn't bound by the same restrictions. Considering all the, the progress we've made um, with rocket propulsion, how much further can innovation take us? I mean, could we possibly improve efficiency tenfold? Is there a point where physics allows for significant advancements in engine efficiency? Uh, as I mentioned, the ultimate goal is a fully, quickly reusable orbital system. Right now, Falcon 9 is our only reusable rocket, with the booster returning to Earth as seen in videos. We've managed to recover the nose cone referring to. However, the upper stage doesn't come back, costing us at least $10 million in construction um, for each launch. It's a bit like recovering a large airplane, but not the smaller one, including other parts not reusable as fast as we wanted. The minimum cost per flight, excluding overheads, comes to about $15, $20 million. It's still the best in history, but with full rapid reusability, we can cut cost per ton to orbit by 100 times. Imagine if you bought a new car every time you drive. Ridiculous, right? We want to replicate refueling or recharging cars, making the trip much cheaper. With these changes, Starship could, in theory, take over 100 tons to orbit for just around $1, $2 million per launch, which is an astonishing reduction. It's fascinating to think about life on Mars, isn't it? Besides the engineering to guess there, I'm curious about what kind of societal structure could work best once we land, while it's important to focus on the tangible tasks, pondering about a Mars civilization stirs our ambitions for the future. It has a certain allure, don't you think? Something that sparks hope in people. All right, think about it. Um, 
like this. We've got a shot at reshaping government, just like when it was first made. I'd push for direct democracy, where everyone votes on laws, not just politicians. This beats representative democracy, which is often manipulated by special interests. Plus, all laws should be concise for straightforward understanding. Yeah, it's frustrating when we go online and continuously accept cookies. But that's a piece of a broader problem, the never-ending accumulation of rules and regulations in past times. Major events like World Wars forced a reset on these. Now, as society stays peaceful, um, there's no mechanism to clean out unneeded regulations, which pile up since they don't naturally die. But essentially, we need a garbage collection system for regulations. Some are counterproductive or even serve vested interests. Without an effective method to discard old and obsolete rules, we risk becoming like Gulliver, tied down by unnecessary restrictions. This is evident in any long-standing economy, so it's crucial that we consciously work on removing such unnecessary rules and regulations. But it's challenging due to special interests, fighting to keep specific regulations intact. And yeah, in terms of coding, it'd be fascinating if laws had an expiry date and vanished unless someone openly advocated for them. Instead of needing to be abolished, they'd simply fade away. Definitely, society needs an active process to question and, if necessary, remove rules and regulations. Consider them as code for operating civilization. Over time, though, if we only add codes without removing any, we run into the issue of code accumulation. It ends up like archaic bloatware that slows down progression. You can imagine if on Mars, laws required active, active voting for renewal, so nothing becomes permanently set in stone. I truly believe it should be easier to strip laws than to create them. Maybe a 60 vote to enact a law, dropping to a 40 vote to remove it. Though it's all hypothetical, the final call rests with the future inhabitants of Mars. So are there possibilities for concepts like smart contracts and tech, you know, using something like Ethereum or perhaps Dogcoin to establish and execute government laws? In any deal, it's absolutely crucial to ensure everyone fully understands the terms. It's best to keep things simple and straightforward in regular speech. Often deals get too drawn out and excessively legalistic, which isn't always useful. The focus should be on ensuring comprehension and outlining repercussions if the deal falls through. Uh, you talked about Dogecoin being a coin for the people and, and even suggested sending one to the moon with SpaceX. Is that still a plan? And what about Mars? Could you see Dogecoin becoming the official currency there? Yeah, and sure, considering Mars's distance fluctuates from a four to twenty minute light journey away, it prevents immediate synchronization. An um, example would be a a one minute blockchain which won't sync correctly. Uh, so the idea of Mars having its own localized cryptocurrency seems probable. Definitely, I believe the future of Mars should be determined by Martians. On another note, cryptocurrency is an intriguing approach to curbing the flaws in our financial system. Thanks to PayPal, I have gained deep insights into the intricacies of money exchanges. It's surprisingly, though, most of these systems are run on aged, inconsistent cobalt mainframes. Yes, banks are still purchasing mainframes and running old cobalt code in 2021, even older tech than the Federal Reserve. Essentially, the government can meddle with our money database using its editing privileges, resulting in more cash generation. And an increase in discrepancies.
if if we look at it from the angle of information theory, money is akin to an internet connection with elements like bandwidth latency and errors impacting the network communication. The real question to ask is which system would allow an economy to function better from an information standpoint. Crypto tries to mitigate uh, monetary errors caused by governments artificially inflating the money supply, behaving as a subtle tax. In terms of inflation policy and technology, cobalt cryptocurrency brings us fully into the 21st century. It enables transactions and wealth storage like never before. Let's rethink money, not as a power entity, but as information. Consider being stuck on a tropical island, even with a fortune without resources to allocate. Money loses its worth. So it just encapsulates how resources are spread. Even endless Bitcoin won't prevent starvation, proving money itself holds no power. Money can be seen as a resource allocation database across time and space, but the format of this system matters. Bitcoin, for instance, has limitations like restricted transaction volume and long confirmation times. While it offers some benefits like the store of of wealth or an account of relative obligations, it fails to function as a daily used currency due to its inefficiencies. Various tech solutions such as the Lightning Network and other layer two technologies have been suggested. There's a bit of a trade-off. Sure. But the genius lies in considering the kind of database or infrastructure that would foster such an exchange. Running an economy requires a system for efficiently trading goods and services and traditional bartering simply won't cut it. Something like Dogecoin, originally a joke, may have merit here with its high transaction volume and low fees. Bitcoin, by comparison, has costly transactions and its disability is decreasing over time. This largely owed to its 2008 roots when the internet was slower and its small block size was suitable. However, the scale transactions needed today makes Bitcoin less viable. Furthermore, if a currency's value is expected to increase over time, people may hesitate to spend it, choosing to hold it instead. To just combat this, uh, currency should slightly dilute it over time, promoting spending. Dogecoin, quite randomly, has a fixed number of coins generated annually, providing this dilution. While it's not the perfect currency system, it seems to be more effective than other options I've seen. So is it bug or a feature that the creator's identity is unknown? It's intriguing how this technology has a completely anonymous inventor, a unique event in human history. Examining the progression of ideas prior to Bitcoin's birth illustrates contributors like Nick Zabo, whose input greatly influenced its development. While I can't confirm who truly invented Bitcoin, it seems Zabo had the most significant role in ideation, although he denies being Nakamoto. Autopilot Tesla. Autopilot Tesla, Autopilot has been through an incredible journey over the past six years or perhaps even longer. In your mind and the, the minds of many involved, during my time, my, I gathered extensive knowledge about the complexities of computer vision and the Darboro challenge making me initial skeptical about Tesla's vehicle system based on Mobile. My first drive in a Tesla led me to doubt its ability to maintain lane discipline and ensure a comfortable ride. In short, I initially believed that the lane keeping challenge was too daunting to overcome. Sure, that's about how different approaches are taken. Sometimes it's starting from scratch. 
Other times it's adapting to what's available and then designing afresh this decision, whether it concerns hardware or software, is among the bravest I've witnessed initially. I doubted its likelihood of success due to the problem's complexity. But seeing what's been accomplished in terms of compute, sensors, and data, I am most captivated by the work led by Andre Kapathy. His handling of the data set network architectures, the real-world testing and validation is truly like real-world artificial intelligence compared to the conventional models used in academia. Over the past five or six years working on autopilot, um, I've gained unique insights into the challenges of autonomous driving. We started off with basic principles, but the complexity of the task was a surprise. Self-driving technology proved more difficult than I anticipated, despite expecting it to be tough. Ultimately, to make it work, we're essentially replicating human driving systems. This means using optical sensors like our eyes and neural nets in our brains, which we need to recreate digitally. The whole road system functions based on our optical and biological neural nets. Thus, we need something similar for self-driving, advanced neural net-enabled cameras. I believe this is the only viable solution. Solving the perception problem is the first step in autonomous driving. Is about understanding what we look at when we drive. Think about car doors. What's the difference between an open and closed door? That's perception. Humans can decode it easily, but it's a challenge for self-driving tech like Tesla. The next phase intertwines this with control and planning. Driving involves numerous situational responses, like the game theory at a four-way stop sign. Our driving actions change others' behavior. Most of the time, we're reacting to the scene rather than controlling it. Software coding is complex, especially when creating accurate vector space. It involves transitioning from image space, this continuous stream of photons to camera, to a compressed vector space. Vector space includes elements like cars, people, lane lines, traffic lights. Once this vector space is precise, it's similar to controlling elements in a video game like Grand Theft Auto or Cyberpunk, not exactly a walk in the park, but definitely achievable. The main challenge lies in ensuring the vector space's accuracy. Your brain remarkably processes and presents a refined, uh, enhanced image of what you see around, despite having limited color receptors at the corners of your eyes. Uh, we perceive vibrant peripheral colors courtesy of our eyes adding in color. Our view of the world isn't obstructed by... Um, gnarly stuff or a blind spot in our vision because our brain fills those gaps seamlessly. So like with online perception exercises, when we focus on certain points, even if something lands in our blind spot, our brain effortlessly completes the picture. Your brain does a lot of processing with visual signals, working to condense as much info as possible. Given our memory's limited capacity, it's constantly striving to forget and minimize details, keeping only the essential pieces aims for the smallest possible vector space, focusing on just crucial elements. Imagine driving. Your brain isn't fully aware of everything around you. You only have two cameras, uh, two eyes with limited angles. With our tendency to multitask, we're often not fully attentive. Despite this, our brain is constantly selecting and simplifying the most necessary information from our surroundings to help us function effectively, particularly in a dynamic activity like driving. Indeed, our mind can compress information into concepts uh, going beyond mere spatial representation. 
for instance, remember a school zone as a concept rather than a physical space. In driving, you might not need to fully grasp these. These concepts might come in directly. Establish a vector space and predict within it. Picture this. Um, you see kids about to cross before a bus obstructs your view. Though unseen, you anticipate they'll cross the road next to the bus. This involves memory recalling their presence and forward prediction anticipating their location. Working with occlusions in computer vision is, is a real challenge. I mean, keeping track of an object that goes out of sight, say behind a tree, and then reappears, it's incredibly tricky. In academia, we call it tracking through occlusions, and it's no piece of cake. Like how toddlers learn about object permanence. It's the same with neural nets in humans. Initially, when you hide a toy from a toddler, every time it reappears, it's as if it's new. They're surprised because they believe the toy vanished and reappeared. However, as they mature, they understand the concept of object permanence, realizing that the toy didn't disappear, but was simply out of sight. Clearly, the neural networks in the car now have time and spatial memory, but there's a balance to it. You need to decide how long you want to remember something, considering there's a limit to what can be stored in excess memory could cause outdated information. Like, for example... Let's think of a scenario where you notice people waiting to cross the road, but they're obscured. They might wait a while before their light changes. Even if this exceeds your time-based memory, your memory of space should recall their position and the possible action of crossing. This shows that, that the balance between time and space memory is crucial. The complexity of the car's assortment of neural networks can be mind-boggling. They have well, from simple image recognition on one camera frame to many layers linked together with C language. Primarily, we prefer using C because C has too much overhead to get the best performance. We even created our own C compiler. We're continuously refining this compiler to be as efficient as possible with a recent upgrade allowing it to compile directly to our autopilot hardware. As you want to break down everything with your compiler for efficiency. It's about managing different computes like CPU, GPU, and ASIC types and scheduling them effectively. So once you've got your code compiled accordingly, that's why there's a team involved. We invest hugely into hardcore software engineering at a, a foundational level, given the constraints of our full self-driving computer. Our primary aim is to maximize frames per second within a set compute limit or boost compute efficiency and better use trip accelerators. Our exceptional team at Tesla employs complex matrix math like countless dot products, which comprise almost 99 of neural nets computation. We're redefining image processing for cameras, focusing less on aesthetics and more on raw data, particularly photon counts. This allows the system to capture more detail than a typical camera excelling in low light conditions as it detects minute differences in photons. By shunning post-processing, we're improving latency to saving about 13 milliseconds. Our system uses eight cameras, each having about 1.6 milliseconds of latency. Bypassing the image processor cuts 13 milliseconds. A vital step for us is we closely monitor latency through all stages. This includes from when the camera detects light to producing the output command for our drive unit to accelerate, reduce speed, turn left or right. This output has to reach certain controllers that may have a slow update frequency potentially causing loss of 100 milliseconds 
to combat this. We aim to update the steering and braking control to under Daichi to decrease the worst case latency from 100 milliseconds. Just done. This substantial hurdle arises not just from latency, but from jitter, which is the variability in latency. Timing tolerances add to this variability and make it difficult to predict maneuvers, which can result in errors of up to 0.2 seconds. This variation can significantly impact the car's performance. Basically, we need to, to find a way to handle the impact of jitter. This jitter can occur in our sensor data or any stage of the process, affecting how we make reliable control decisions. With fixed latency, like 150 milliseconds, we can plan around it. However, if you add in 100 milliseconds of jitter, unpredictability enters the mix. This can range from 0 to 100 milliseconds, making your latency variable between 150 to 50 milliseconds. This added uncertainty, which is essentially random, is problematic. Thus, eliminating jitter is crucial. Sure. The car's performance will significantly improve with reduced jitter. Imagine cars navigating with beyond-human skills and ultra-fast reaction time. Eventually, autopilot full self-driving could even outperform anything you've seen in an action-packed James Bond movie. So the solution could be the existing group of FSD title test cases. Um, they're increasingly gaining independence, and there's a point where they're capable of performing tasks independently, like reading a book. Those keeping tabs on the full self-driving beta will have noticed a quick decline in disengagements, where the driver steps in to stop a potential mishap. The frequency of these interventions has plummeted, and it's predicted that by next year, the likelihood of an accident with RFSD will be way below that of an average human. However, it's still necessary to convince regulators it's not just as good as a human, but significantly better. Ideally, we should aim for two to three times the safety level of a human before giving the green light. Sure, we aim for 11 releases this year. However, 11 involves significant neural net architecture overhauls and enhancements in vector space generation. 11 is essentially one neural network stack to govern everything, bringing with it substantial changes, enabling broader capacities. But these advances might come with initial roadblocks. What we're doing is essentially swapping sizable parts of FC, FC code with a neural network in our alpha software. This phenomenon, often pointed out by Andre, is like neural nets gradually replacing conventional software, resulting in fewer heuristics and more matrix-based concepts. One of the key changes will be the use of neural nets to directly translate bags of points delivered, representing things like if a pixel is a car or a lane line into vector space, rather than the CLC code doing it. This introduces a new layer of neural nets to process these DAGs of points, making significant improvements to the software. In simple terms, the game-changing shift here is towards a more efficient system powered by neural net, reducing reliance on the cumbersome coding process. It's no longer about assembling a huge bag of points with extensive lines of CIC. Instead, our neural net will do the job, outputting purposeful data like lane lines, curbs, drival space, and identifying pedestrians or vehicles. It's a shift from creating vectors in C to having a neural net output vectors directly to the SC control code. It's like we've hit a ceiling with how much we can do with CU. So this change is truly vital. And furthermore, it's necessary that all networks in the car switch to surround view video, including updating any existing legacy networks that haven't made the switch yet. 
training also needs to be on surround video. Overall, we need to be more efficient with training um, and take the huge leap of shifting from processed images to training on raw photon counts. This means our system should be trained on raw, unprocessed sensor data instead, requiring a significant reset on our training methods. Sure, paying attention to sound is equally important. Things like ambulance sirens or fire trucks matter. And listening if anyone is calling out to you is useful too. So audio truly plays a role. All right, break time. To be honest, conceptualizing is simple. It's the actual execution that's difficult. It's easy to dream of moon missions, but tough to accomplish them. It takes intense engineering at the hardware and software ends, tweaking every detail, eliminating latency, work that our engineers are doing brilliantly. They might not be in the spotlight, but are vital for our success. Without them, we can't function properly. Sure, it's exaccelerating beyond Andre's work. The entire software infrastructure, particularly the data engine, it's all simply marvelous. The scale of the work we've done is just mind-boggling. We've created tons of custom software for auto-labeling because manually tagging surround videos is incredibly painstaking. Just one clip can take hours. Our solution, we apply high-powered computing to preliminarily label what's happening in our surround videos. It is indeed a massive task, but auto-labeling is vital for efficiency. Absolutely. Robotics are fascinating, particularly humanoid robots. Um, it's pretty exciting that the work on this involves applying ideas from the data engine and Tesla autopilot to another robotics challenge. Key question, though, given the focus on human-robot interaction, do you envision the Tesla bot as more than just a labor replacement? Could it potentially interact with humans at home, even doubling as a friend or an assistant? Well, Tesla's main goal is accelerating sustainable energy. We're also considering creating a humanoid robot that could improve the world by assisting in factories and various tasks. In the coming years, it's, it's possible that work will become optional because there are many jobs that people do not enjoy or find monotonous or dangerous and would not perform if not paid. Picture a dishwasher working for eight hours straight every day. Who would want to do that? Our humanoid robots could handle these kinds of jobs, making work less tedious and risky for humans. Eventually, this could be paired with a system like universal basic income in the future. It's funny asking about the Tesla bot or Optimus, as I playfully call it. This isn't some massive transformer robot. It's meant to be a general use, helpful bot. We at Tesla are leading the AI field for real-world interaction, and much of this was achieved as we developed self-driving cars, trying to compress the massive computing power that neural nets require into lower energy systems, like a single computer in a humanoid robot or car, requires diligent software innovation. But we're already navigating the real world with AI in our cars. So extending this to robots seems a natural step. Two, okay, challenges remain. Um, having the bot understand enough to interact effectively and superior manufacturing, both areas we excel in, we just need to develop customized motors and sensors different from what we use in cars for the bot. Given our prowess in advanced electric motors and power electronic development, I'm confident we can handle it. We're naturally drawn to humanoid or even animal-like robots. Globally, loneliness is a big issue. We all crave human relationships or companionship. In Austin, many have dogs serving that purpose. So there's a huge potential 
for robots to mitigate loneliness or facilitate human connections like our pets do. Are those emotional connections um, a consideration for Tessabot or is the focus mainly on task execution? Never really considered it, but honestly, uh, a robot could provide great companionship. They develop distinct personalities over time. Not all robots are the same. These personalities can evolve to mirror their owner or well companion, however you want to phrase it. Absolutely. It's intriguing how the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi applies here. It's the small flaws that render something or someone unique. Similarly, the slight quirks in a robot's personality mirroring those of its human companion rather than owner could be quite significant. As a machine learning expert, I believe it's fine for a robot to be a bit clumsy in a foam environment. It's kind of cute, and we often grow fond of these quirks. It's completely different when it comes to autonomous driving. It's a high-stakes situation that doesn't allow for mistakes. So in comparison, robots in the home can afford to be a bit more unpolished and fun. These add uh, a unique layer to the story, making it relatable and enduring due to their mistakes. My aim is to create something useful, and I'm confident in achieving it. Without a clear timeline, we should have a solid prototype by next year's end. The autopilot inference computer will be used by the robot. Much of our car training on identifying real-world objects can be directly utilized. However, designing custom sensors and actuators is essential. Yeah, it's basically, it should be titled Engineer Wars. Essentially, when there's a rapid change in the rate of technology, and engineering plays a the pivotal role in victory in battle. This discussion initially focused on World War II, uh, fighter and bomber tech, but broadened as I immersed myself in continuous advancements made by various nations. Essentially, the race revolved around ever-increasing innovation and access to quality resources. Germany, despite its exceptional designs, faced challenges due to lack of raw materials and poor oil quality with their fuel quality often fluctuating. Absolutely. The U.S. had top quality, reliable fuel, essential for high-performance aircraft engines. Consistency and high-octane levels are key to this, as impurities can ruin the engines. Despite Germany's attempts to get oil through invasions, they just never could secure good access like the U.S. did. Pleasure meeting you. Germany grappled with poor quality oil relying on additives since they couldn't assure good fuel for their aircraft, unlike the U.S. with superior fuel. This US fuel boosted aircraft engine performance for both the U.S. and Britain. Germany could create engines but lacked good fuel. That subpar aluminum alloy quality also affected them. Collecting on history, particularly intense figures like Genghis Khan, Stalin, and Hitler, um, what key lessons can we draw? What insights does history offer about human nature and behavior today, including wars, individual actions, and people's overall conduct. Yeah, I, f I find history fascinating. There's a lot of incredible things that have been done, good and bad, that they help you understand the nature of civilization and individuals. There's a ton of human history out there, right? And it's not all doom and gloom, like war or disaster. Those are just infrequent events. In fact, a lot of Pelvic history is just ordinary folks carrying on with their days, like being a farmer or a villager. The instances of combat and crises, you know, get a lot of attention, but it's it's not the whole story. So, I got to tell you though, some historical accounts uh, can be quite heavy.
an example, the book about Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, was such a dark red, I just couldn't finish. Quite intense. So for me, there's a real lesson in history, especially from the 1930s. It underlines that timeless truth that we all carry both good and evil within us. It kind of places a responsibility on us to consciously choose the good. I mean, it's scarily easy to be swayed by charismatic leaders and end up causing harm to ourselves and others. It's a reminder that though we've moved on from the past, the potential for repeating is always there. Granted, most of the time people are just living their lives and life has definitely improved thanks to innovation and technology. Yet, these occasional dark chapters in our history are certainly eye-opening. Definitely for the majority of our history, life was quite harsh. In those times, a good year would be one with minimal deaths from things like plague or starvation. The goal was not starving and ensuring enough food for winter. Today, it's a different scenario. We have so much food that obesity has become a problem. Sure, indeed. It's crucial to appreciate our present situations. As we've discussed before, how about if we sit and chat more about this? Would that work for you? Reading Cyrillic might seem difficult at first, but as you understand what the characters represent, it's not so bad. Many words, like a bank, are the same in both Russian and English, hence making it simpler. The 20th century saw remarkable advances in rocketry and space exploration, much of it from the Soviet Union. I'm inspired by that history. Part of the unfortunate reality, however, is that because of the language barrier, a significant portion of this rich heritage has been lost or misunderstood as it's not often translated. Despite this, uh, their distinct culture has thrived within its own borders. The Soviet Union, including Russia and Ukraine, have a remarkable history in spaceflight contributing some of the most groundbreaking advancements ever. Their awe-inspiring rocket technology, developed post-Soviet Union era, warrants admiration. While the pace has slowed since the Union's dissolution, noteworthy developments continue. I reckon friendly competition is beneficial. Governments can be sluggish, and something like the Olympics would lack excitement if everyone crossed the finish line together. It's that competitive edge that encourages people to try harder. So, in my view, a bit of friendly rivalry does more good than harm. I just want to highly recommend a video called The Entire Soviet Rocket Engine Family Tree from Tim Dodd, also known as the Everyday Astronaut. It's a comprehensive 90 minutes long history of Soviet rockets, Tim's enthusiasm for spaceflight, and the future is infectious. It's impossible not to grind seeing his passion. Definitely go support his work. Dodd is a top-notch resource for anyone curious about space-related themes, such as rocket technology. Part of the reason I shifted from an initial plan of a hydrogen engine was due to numerous challenges such as low density and high insulation needs. I was impressed by the Soviet Union's shift to Methalux engines, achieving an impressive 382nd SPI. Recognizing this and seeking to lower the cost per ton to orbit or Mars, I believe methane oxygen is the better option and decision influenced by Russian tests with methalox engines. I strongly advocate for nuclear power, especially in areas not prone to severe natural disasters. It's an excellent source of electricity. I'm against the closure of nuclear power stations. You're right, there's a widespread fear of radiation, mostly due to lack of proper understanding. Many people find the term radiation ominous, yet it's not as dangerous as it might seem. When the Fukushima incident occurred, even 
folks in California were concerned about potential radiation threats. I, I reassured them there was zero reason to worry. It's shocking how the perceived danger is often blown out of proportion. To illustrate this, I've visited Fukushima, where I installed a solar power system and even ate local veggies on TV. Here I am, perfectly live and well. People often ask me about cell phone radiation causing brain cancer, but they don't quite grasp the concept of radiation. When talking about radiation, you could mean photons or particles, and typically people don't know the difference. Everything is constantly emitting photons, and all objects continuously release them. If you want to grasp exposure to nuclear radiation, just go outside. We're consistently staring at the sun, a huge thermonuclear reactor, and, well, we're all still alive. Surprising, isn't it? Sure, if we compare the death toll from nuclear accidents and coal plants, it's blurringly evident that the latter's is significantly higher. Thus, it's downright absurd to ignite more coal plants while phasing out nuclear ones. In fact, coal plants can be hundreds, even thousands of times more harmful to our health than nuclear power plants. There's a unique thrill to stepping onto unexplored land. While exploring oceans is significant, nothing quite matches the impact of landing on an entirely new continent. Absolutely, though, $6 trillion is a significant amount. It won't erase worldwide hunger. The fact is, our planet generates more food than we can eat. So hunger typically isn't due to calorie shortage. In most cases, hunger stems from political unrest or war. So often in one region of a country is trying to starve another. It's it's really just a case of insufficient funds. Sure. Um, a food surprisingly affordable in the U.S. these days. Yet for families with lesser income, obesity, not hunger, poses a big problem. It's more about excessive calories than scarcity. Solving this issue isn't as simple as just throwing money at it. Absolutely. Um, the British Museum, despite its controversial history of acquiring artifacts globally, offers a convenient space for a large audience to view these historic pieces. On balance, I believe the museum is a positive entity, even though some nations may dispute this. Ultimately, the goal is to make these precious artifacts available to as many as possible, a goal I feel a British museum meets quite well. History's Empires has its fair share of darker moments. Despite how things played out, we can't deny or erase what took place. However, we have the power to learn and improve for the future, and that's what truly matters. Indeed, when judging historical acts like the British Empire, it's about context, comparing their actions to others at the time. Despite not being exemplary by today's standards, they weren't the worst back then. It's essential to evaluate these actions against their contemporaries and contextual history. If we judge past societies by today's moral standards, everyone would fail. Did anyone reach today's level of morality, say, 300 years ago? Certainly not. Soaks have enjoyed bread and, and meat separately for ages. But when someone decided to marry the two into one tasty, handheld meal, that's where the genius lies, a solution to grimy hands. That, in my opinion, is the epitome of convenience. Guess what? Ordering a cheeseburger is no surprises. You know, what's coming? Sure, fries might be trouble, but who can resist? And let's not forget, pizza is simply amazing. I performed stand-up for buddies right on a rooftop, and they laughed. Though they're friends, so I'm 
unsure if uh, Room of Strangers would find it equally amusing. But hey, it's worth giving a shot, right? I genuinely appreciate both your successes and failures in humor. Observing how one navigates the delicate space of comedy, especially in moments where laughter doesn't follow, is simply beautiful to me. Sure, Rick and Morty really dive into fascinating ideas. For me, the butter robot is a favorite. Exactly. Overcomplicated devices can cause issues. Like an intelligent toaster would be miserable just making toast. Ultimately, we don't want advanced cognitive abilities trapped in restrictive appliances. Can it be simple to engineer a robot like Marvin with super intelligence? Maybe. But designing one that finds its existence fulfilling might not be as straightforward. It's akin to how humanity functions. If we don't put adequate effort into building a robot, there's a chance it might default to sadness. Reprogramming robots is simpler than humans. If left untouched, they could become sad, but we can adjust their settings for a happier demeanor. So you're asking what advice I give to youth, those in high school or college, looking to make a big positive impact in this world, right? Regarding career or life in general, will aim to be of use. The goal is to contribute more than we consume, making a positive impact on society, not just seeking leadership for its own sake. Often, the best leaders are those who don't seek it. Living a useful life is a fulfilling one. I urge people to utilize the problem-solving techniques of physics in wider life areas. They're effective tools. In terms of learning how to have a positive impact and be useful, there are several approaches. You could go hands-on by joining a group that shares your interests as soon as possible. Alternatively, you might opt for more solitary exploration, like traveling across Europe and creating things like poetry. Your chosen path depends on your, your personal style and passions. Encourage yourself to read ingest information and broaden your knowledge. By learning a bit about a lot, you'll discover your true interests. It's all about exploring different knowledge areas and interacting with people from varied backgrounds and professions. Dive into the quest for meaning. Sure, exploring life's purpose is vital. I tell folks, immerse yourself in various subjects and discover where your interests intersect with your gifts. It's one thing to be skilled at something, but it's crucial to enjoy it. Aim for that sweet spot, combining your inherent talents and what you genuinely like doing. You know, knowledge comes from exploration. Keep your reading wide and open. That's that's how I did it. Even went through encyclopedias as a kid. It's astonishing how you reveal things you never even knew about, like the law of light. Encyclopedias, like the condensed version of Encyclopedia Britannica, are a great resource to read or skim for knowledge. I value honesty and work and admire those who aim to grow the pie rather than maintain zero-sum mindsets. When you see smart individuals involved in questionable actions, it's often due to this zero-sum mentality. They might not even consciously realize they believe they can only gain by taking from others, assuming a fixed pie. However, this mentality is, is incorrect. Economic pie is not fixed, but expands over time. Therefore, it's detrimental to aim to, aim to get ahead by taking from others. Instead, focus on contributing to the economic pie, creating more than you consume. Sadly, some people, especially in finance, have adopted this zero-sum mentality. Us across all realms, I've noticed that when we celebrate and support each other, it actually expands opportunities instead of creating a rivalry for limited resources. This philosophy is prevalent in varying fields, 
including academia. People often perceive funding for academic research as finite, but it's not. If we encourage everyone's excitement about uh, OPI or physics, funding would increase and everyone benefits. Essentially, competition diminishes while collaboration leads to growth. This principle applies everywhere. So on love and its role in life, and particularly in mine, how has love, whether it's romantic or not, improved me as a person and as an engineer? Now you're asking really perplexing questions. It's hard to give up. I mean, there are many books, poems, and songs written about what is love and what exactly what is love. Baby, don't hurt me. We discussed how vital it is to be practical, problem-solving, and alleviating distress. However, our talks always lead to the power of human connection, the root of happiness, and life's meaning. That's love, friendship. This shapes my vision when talking about keeping human consciousness alive and us venturing into becoming a space-faring species. For me, being alone in this universe, despite our consciousness and intelligence, seems void when compared to the death we achieve together. And when we're together, it's magical. It's about friendship and love. Love isn't just romance. It's also the bond between family and friends. Basically, my passion for making us a multiplanetary species stems from my love for humanity. I yearn to see us progress, achieve greatness, and find happiness. If it were otherwise, I wouldn't be concerned with these matters. Douglas Adams, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, suggests the universe itself is our answer. The real challenge lies in pinpointing the right questions to inquire about it. Once we can correctly formulate these questions, deriving answers becomes relatively simple. We need to navigate these complexities of the universe and life's meaning. Uh, it's it's crucial to broaden our consciousness with scope and scale. Generating thoughtful queries is tough indeed. The essence of my beliefs, however, is my curiosity about the universe and our existence. Even though our lives are finite, I'm driven by the desire to uncover the nature and purpose of existence. Expanding our understanding and consciousness, whether human or artificial, supports this quest. And I view that as a fundamentally beneficial pursuit. Kayon, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today. Your work has inspired millions, especially in such challenging times. I hope you keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for tuning into my chat with Elon Musk. Support us by exploring our sponsors in the description. Elon's wisdom to remember. Even against odds, if it's crucial, you make it happen. Hope to catch you in the next episode.